1: Yes, hello, this is the Not The Top 20 podcast, the FSA award-nominated NTT 20 podcast, and we'll be updating that next week to tell you whether we are indeed winners or losers of the award. Not losers. We're sponsored by Betfair, we're Ali Maxwell and George Ellick. George, we're off to the big do tonight.
0: And you're already wearing a tie, the time is 2.40, the award starts at 6.30, so... (laughs) Someone's excited.
1: <laughs> Dress for the job that you want, not the job that you have, is what some so people say. So you want to be a... The winner of the FSA Awards Podcast of the Year it's not what you like to me.
0: I don't know what you look like. You look like a uh, just a nice nine-to-fiver.
1: Uh, this week we got quite a fun Monday pod. It's kind of patchwork cobbled together we've got a really entertaining championship weekend to talk you through including some of the best goals plural that we've seen this season we've also got uh, a discussion George about West Bromwich Albion and huge concerns about what's going on off the field
0: yeah I recorded an interview earlier today with Alistair Jones from Action for Albion um, anyone who's kind of follows this stuff closely would have seen that there was a, a news story out a week or so ago um, about another loan being taken out against the club. So that will come at the end of the championship section.
1: We'll dip into League One where there was one match and a bit of extra League One content. An interview with Barnsley striker Devontae Cole, which I performed a couple of days ago. Really enjoying. Performed?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of performing an interview.
1: I performed, well, a doctor <laughs> performed surgery, don't I? you
0: say Devontae's performing at the moment?
1: Goals. Mm. Yeah, he had 8-7 and seven to start the season, which he told us about, among other things. Uh, so, quite a fun pod. We're not going to talk loads about the FA Cup second round, I'm afraid. I, I really enjoyed Maidstone United's late winner, uh, George Kobe, mm. Very emotional post-game. They're the lowest-ranked team still in the competition, and they've landed themselves a draw away to Stevenage or Port Vale uh, in the FA Cup third round. Des Buckingham, Oxford manager, he got his first win. That must have been nice for him. You said that Josh Murphy was very good in that game. Yeah. And there was a couple of other bits and bobs. Uh, Morkham beat Wickham from the league above. Uh, similarly, Gillingham beat Charlton from the league above. Charlton made it back-to-back League One scalps. They beat Portsmouth in the first round. They beat Orient in the second round. They look like a hell of a team, Chesterfield. I think we'll be seeing them next season in League Two. And Eastley beat Reading. And Eastley beat Reading, which was a dramatic late winner. Uh, Paul McCallum, who I remember playing in the FL quite some time ago. He's now top scorer in the National League. Maybe we'll see him. In the EFL next season. The sell before we die, Reading fan protest against their ownership as the situation took another turn with not all of the staff being paid their wages in full for November. Things looking very concerning there. Let's talk Championship, George. It was some weekend, some remarkable goals. Three injury time winners in total, one injury time equaliser. And in fact, there's been two rounds of games since we last spoke. So, Plenty to get stuck into. Five teams have picked up maximum points since our last Monday pod. One of them, Queen's Park Rangers. Mm. Marty Cifuentes. A two-no win away at Preston North End. It's eight points from Cifuentes' five games. They had eight points after 14.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, they'd won two games this season before uh, the Tuesday night win over, over Stoke. And to score six goals... For those six goals to have come um, pretty well spread amongst their attacking players, to have beaten Preston North End away from home without Ilias Cher, um, who I think when the team sheet came out and Cher wasn't on it, I think there was understandably um, some concern as to how much that weakened uh, QPR. I mean, it should be said that in terms of the games that they've had and, and the, the, you know, if you look through the recent fixtures, the five games they've had since Fuentes came in, you've got Rotherham who are in the relegation zone, uh, bottom of the league, currently Bristol City who are going through a bit of a transition post Pearson um, with Manning now at the helm Norwich who things off the pitch are not looking very good at all uh, and, and on it is a, a kind of going up and down Stoke and Preston North End who are both in the middle of poor runs of form so not to pour cold water on it but there's got to be an element here where these are five games where QPR are playing not weak opposition necessarily but, but it feels like at least at the very least a good time to play them but that can be in itself a a a way to turn a season around and I think Sifuentes has clearly come in with very very different ideas of how he wants to play compared to um Gareth Ainsworth I think most managers have a different kind of style of play to Gareth Ainsworth we're seeing them look to get the ball down and retain it a lot more um we saw them against Stoke in particular um have you know a a fair bit of the ball especially when it was uh 10 the 11 after the sending off but generally it's a more balanced style of play, I would say. We've seen Willock come in and score two and two, which is massive. I think it's often forgotten that when QPR was so good at the top of the championship, it wasn't just Chair Willock was one, seen as one of the best players in the championship for a time, and then basically totally ineffective for the best part of twelve months, um scoring twice, getting a clean sheet at Preston too. Like it, it felt like relegation was becoming not a foregone conclusion in December, but. Almost like an inevitability that it was going to it was going to come to that way. Whereas now they are one of these three teams at the bottom, um, w- of which two have made a managerial change and are really reaping the re- rewards right now. With back-to-back home games coming up against Hull and Plymouth, there'll definitely be a belief um, within the QPR fan base that they're able to to probably you know beat anyone at home right now. So. massive change um, just the one defeat in five for Cifuentes, and we're loving what we're seeing
1: we certainly are I think the defensive improvement is kind of the strongest so far they've conceded uh, less than one expected goal against in each of Cifuentes' five games so far that keeps you in every single game and it's complete opposite to what came before they conceded less than one XG in only two of 14 before that under Ainsworth in the league so uh, that's been the, the bedrock on which the improvement has been built but you can see the extra confidence on the ball um, you can see the way that he's empowered certain players to show that they are perfectly good technically for this level and able to impact games of course Chair and Willock but players like Paul as well um, Fields Dozel even the defenders look a bit more comfortable and a bit happier as well so uh, it's really exciting it's been a, a great start still a long way to go I mean we spoke about this on the betting show a lot of this is about Preston as well and how alarming their performances and their form are they're still 8th in the league like this game was 8th against 22nd wasn't it but even heading into it I said the way I'm viewing these teams at the moment I think there's there's n- way less between them than the league possession suggested and that certainly was the case I mean they are among the worst teams in the division right now Preston uh, in terms of points returned just 9 from their last 12 league games. Uh, Having got 20 in their first eight, it's now eight from their last 11. And the underlying numbers don't really give them much solace. Really poor, particularly in attack. They've had three shots on target or fewer in nine of the last 11 games. It's not good enough. And Lowe in midweek went on a really passionate post-match rant, really, talking about his players being fearful. And it was to try and get a reaction on Friday night. And he got the worst possible reaction, where they were poor from the start, really. Uh, and once they went behind, and once QPR put a modicum of pressure on them with chair on form, they just collapsed and lost 2-0. So, um, all not well at Preston North End, I think it's fair to say. Uh, what for beat Hull 2-1. Hoot. Hoot. Wesley. Hoot. What a hit. I mean, what a winning goal. This is... I,
0: I still think this was very fun in terms of the, the way that they win this game. I think as, a, as an away fan, if you're a Watford fan, going to a game, uh, an away game at Hull, Kayembe put them ahead after eight minutes. Scott Twine equalised very soon afterwards, pouncing on a loose ball after um, De Lap after a brilliant run, was thwarted. Uh, De DeLap looking very lively again, continues to make me like a fool for doubting him last season. Um, but, you know, Watford are a team who normally, or well, in most games so far, this campaign, have dominated the ball without necessarily the kind of cutting edge having been very solid at the back but they came up against the side here in Hull who similarly really dominate the ball and have maybe been a bit more um, clever with it and it was Hull who dominated possession here and, and they had a lot of the ball they, had, they created the better chances and it was Watford kind of clinging on for the most part and when Jake Livermore gave away a penalty um, it felt like Hull were going to get their rewards for 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 effectively having the better of the game, um, but it was a brilliant save from Hamer denying uh, Philogene, um, who you know put the ball bottom left. Uh, Hamer dived to his right and managed to save it. And then one of the best winning goals I think you're basically going to see where uh, Wesley Hoot striding out of defence uh, capitalises. You know, t- basically I can't remember who who he tackled. It was Delap Hoot looks up and sees all of off his line and executes one of the great. It's not quite a halfway line goal. It's just inside. It's just inside their half, but it is by perfection. It's always interesting to see how a keeper reacts to when they've got a, a ball, a shot from the halfway line, um, flying over their head. Allsop went for the lesser scene just just nothing really. <laughs> he, it was it was so perfectly uh, dipping into that far corner that Allsop he's
1: got left. loads of stick. It doesn't look great, particularly because he immediately turns around and screams at his screams, defenders, almost as if like the ball's gone wide. But I've watched it so many times, and like who. The trajectory is so high and steep yeah, that by the time it's, literally when it's in line with his head, it's still like so much higher than he
0: could possibly reach. So Ryan, next time you get lobbed from the halfway line, just just jump into the net like everyone yeah, else and then exactly. no, and no one's going to have a go. Exactly. Um, amazing. Like an absolutely incredible uh, way to win a game and the Jubilate, I mean, for those away fans, the penalty save, I think, was in front of them. So, and Hoots goal was at the other end. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. So you've basically seen a penalty save in front of you and then you've got the perfect angle just to see. (laughs) Um, Yeah, an amazing winner. So, I mean, this is a game between two sides who will both, even though Hull have made a better start of it, will both have aspirations to kind of pick the pocket of the top six because it feels like there is is definitely a top um, four or maybe five at the moment in the championship. So there's that one. You know, I'm not saying that West Brom or, or Samson are necessarily d- definitely going to be there but right now when you look at the table it feels like there is a five and then there's one other spot for someone to try and take and Hull have put themselves in a better position for that but there's no denying that Watford with their quality and with Valerian Ishmael as manager as well I think it can be often forgotten that he is someone who gets results generally um, even if the, the style isn't always people's tastes this is a big win for Watford mm. where it enables them to, to, to force themselves into that reckoning
1: For sure it's sort of match day 19 away win Halwa Watford 2 I'm not sure most people would see that as leaping off the page but you know if we're we're talking about the seeded batch here where there are currently I think uh, something like 17 teams uh, split between 12 points the games between those teams now between seeded batch teams are really really important you know similar to when you play a a relegation rival Uh, these are really important games because they they make it more likely that you'll be the one to rise to the very top of that batch Uh, I mean I don't want to go too far pro Watford here because clearly if the penalty gets scored, the game could easily go the other way and probably would have. It felt like Hull made most of the running in general. Having said that, uh, Watford's form is really impressive. It's kind of snuck up on me a little bit. Uh, George, you've always been pretty sweet on them even as they dropped down the table. But it's five wins in their last eight, 17 points in that time. So better than two PPG over the last eight. Um, And a couple of players really sort of coming into their own. Fans have been really pleased with Jake Livermore's performances. He's a sort of signing that probably doesn't get pulses racing, you know, probably perceived to be a bit past it. But actually, I think what he can give you, if you've got some legs around him, uh, is still kind of broadly positive at this level. And they have got legs around him, particularly Kone, who I think is looking really good at the moment, has clearly come on a lot after joining in January. I remember we did a video on him because he'd, he'd starred for Canada at the World Cup. There was a lot of excitement about his signing in January. When we did a bit more research, we realised he'd only been playing as a professional for like a year over in the States. So, you know, we figured that it would take a bit of time for him to adapt, but he really is coming on well. Handles it really well. Puts in a ton of work off the ball as well. Scored a good goal against Norwich in midweek. So... Really positive results for Watford. Uh, I'm not too down on Hull after this one. I still think watching them at the moment, they are looking slicker and slicker. The way that they're attacking is super exciting. Morton's coming on really nicely. Twine has clearly found his his confidence, having had a bit of a a barren spell by his, his high standards. It's two and two for him. Uh, DeLap, Philogene. Uh yeah, exciting, I think, um, in the main for Hull despite this defeat here. Uh two wins in a week for Leeds as well. George, 3-1 against Swans in midweek, 3-2 against Borough on Saturday. Just absolutely crazy game that was 2 uh, 1 after less than 10 minutes, was 3 2 by half time and, and that's how it stayed. Uh, Latilath scored straight away for Borough, which was a bit of a wake up and smell the coffee moment, I think. That is a latte pun. If you're interested. Um, (laughs) After five minutes, they were level. uh, Three bites to the cherry. James had a go. Rutter had a go. And it was recycled and and crossed in for James to leap higher than any defender and head home. Uh, And then Somerville did the same, heading home at the back stick. Now, Somerville is the only player in the league uh, with better than one non-penalty goal and assist per 90 minutes. He is making such huge cont- contribution to this team. Uh, and I don't think anyone really expected him to be scoring backstick headers, but that's where we are right now with Somerville and the form that he's on. Uh, Pirot, penalty, which, watching it back this morning, I, st- I still think that Ruter was possibly in an offside position when the ball was played forward to him. Um, but it's very messy from Clark, bringing him down.
0: But also, I would say, nice to actually see, and this has been a bugbear one for a while, see a penalty given for a foul after a player's got a shot away. Where it annoys me so much. People are like, well, you got a shot off. It's like, well, yeah, but he was falling over when he shot. Like, obviously, he had a better shot if he hadn't been hadn't been fouled. So, yeah, okay, I take the offside point. But my overriding opinion at the time before I saw that was well done, the referee for actually sticking to the rules of the game. And also, I limbs after seven minutes is a great thing. Mm. And I loved seeing the fans behind the goal when Somerville headed home. Because, you know, you, you go to a home game expecting to and You know it's a big game against the Borough side who have been in decent form in recent weeks and you go 1-0 down after three minutes. To reverse that and be 2-1 up four minutes later, both goals, um, headers from your two wingers. It felt like, a, like a, I kind of watched that being like, wow, they had to play like another 85 minutes after this. That's <laughs> mad.
1: Yeah, 3-1 up and then Latilath scored again uh, to make it 3-2 just before half time. Uh, quite a good line from Dex, Uh, Borough fan in NTT 20 squad mentioning that Latilath had five shots inside the box in the first half alone and scored the two hardest ones which kind of sums him up And, and, and I think he and Ruter who had a number of chances for Leeds that he didn't take have a kind of broadly similar vibe at the moment and it's what I guess would be called like the Darwin Nunez vibe where I mean how do you look at strikers like this George who are so active quick brilliant movement relentless in their movement don't seem to care one bit if they miss a chance. They will keep going and keep getting on the end of things. But for whatever reason, seem to find it hard to actually finish their chances at, at the rate that, that fans would like them to. Latilath and, and Ruter, where do you stand on strikers like this?
0: I think, especially with you know Ruter, who is someone who... I mean, Latilath's only 24 as well. So you've got two guys here who are in the infancy of their goal-scoring career. And if you look at most prolific strikers... Um, There obviously are prolific strikers from a younger age group. You know, Cameron Archer is an obvious one where the best part of his game is his finishing ability. So he's never going to have this issue. But I I do think if you're a player like Latilath or like Jorginho Ruter, who, I mean, certainly in the case of Ruter, offers a lot more than goal-scoring ability. And that's why you look at Leeds fans and I think Ruter would be up there with their choice for player of the season so far, given his dribbling ability and his creative
1: work as well. Most expected assists in the league this season.
0: But one of the many... Um, footballing myths that I disagree with is the idea that you can't teach finishing ability, you can't teach composure. I think you absolutely can. I think you have to live through it. Like right now, Ruta has scored five goals from sorry four league goals from I think six point five expected. So yeah, I mean he's underperforming his xG, but not by loads. And he is a young player um, who will I would have thought learn from those experiences. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he becomes very prolific. Um, so yeah. I Right now, frustration for sure. I think you look at latter last two finishes, both the um, the one at the near post and then the header, both taken really well. You know he comes to Middlesbrough off the back of having a decent goal scoring record previously. You know he scored 14 and 31 last season for, in the Swiss Super League for St Gallen. So uh, and also you know Rutez scored goals in the in the Bundesliga. So yeah, I, it it's it's December. It's their first season playing regularly in English football. The fact they're getting in the positions. tells me a lot more about their future goal-scoring exploits in my mind than had they been ultimately very clinical with fewer chances.
1: Right, and the number nine pool in England is about as shallow as it's ever been, I would say. Mm. So if you are Middlesbrough uh, or if you are Leeds United and you're looking... Uh, domestically for a striker. I mean, there's almost nothing for you there. If you look at the top scorers in the championship at the moment, Sammy Smoddix at 28, who's never been a striker before. Uh, Adam Armstrong, of course, uh, unsurprisingly doing pretty well for Sunderland. Jack Clark for for, for Southampton. Southampton, sorry. Jack Clark of Sunderland. Uh, Somerville, Pirro, Whitaker plays off the right. Chaplin in a 10 role. Rowe, who's a wide player. Ryovic and Broadhead. Ryovic, obviously, a, a strapping number nine. But there's not many even within the championship Uh, the sort of types that would guarantee, so to speak, uh, 20 goals, who finish the chances that you want them to, uh, and lead the line well. Even in League One, I mean, there's a a group of about six that have broken clear at the top of the League One goal-scoring charts, but they are mostly quite a lot older, and I guess to that extent wouldn't necessarily be the sort of players that a Leeds or a Borough would be be looking at. For example, um, Colby Bishop, Alfie May, Devontae Cole, who we speak to later in the podcast. So, uh, you know, teams are having to look abroad for their strikers. And in doing so, you know, you're taking risks on that front. Um, Really interesting stuff. Uh, Leeds still in just fantastic form, George. Last 12 games, they've taken 28 points. Uh, Same as Leicester, who we'll get onto in a second. One point back. So picking up 27 from their last 12 games are Ipswich and Southampton. These two teams are also on fantastic form and they both won back-to-back games in the last week. Let's start with Ipswich 2, Coventry 1, Wes Burns.
0: Now, this is not just one of the best goals of the season. I think it's one of the best goals I've ever seen.
1: Whisper it quietly, Puskas.
0: Well, I (laughs) I think we shout it from the rooftops, don't we? I think it's very rare to have a goal with two special parts right where the the move from back to front and, and not in such a sexual way as Jack Clark's last year but the move is is very well orchestrated I love the first time switch from Connor Chaplin out to Leif Davis love I love Davis's ball across back to back to Burns like it's very well worked in that sense not to an extent where if it had been a, a regular finish it would um, necessitate such praise but either way it's still you know McKenna ball in action okay. to to an extent but the finish itself is firstly Burns does very well to, to pick up the ball on the right hand side and, and come across and get into the shooting position but to hit the ball like he's hit it with the outside of his right foot what do they call it what's the um yeah, I was Travella
1: I thought of Ricardo <laughs> Quaresma as soon as I saw it yeah yeah I think that's what everyone thought the Quaresma yeah
0: yeah no I mean I I, I think where's Burns now right um it was
1: it gets better with every single replay, Correct. which I think is a really nice thing. And as it's well.
0: really handy as well that the the main camera angle yeah. does it justice, which is well, not yeah. always the case with goals where scored at the other end. For the moment you see it. I'd love to know what that would look like for, if the camera yeah. was at the other we end. You wouldn't really know. Wow. Um, like you see some finishes but it's only on the second or the third view where you're like, Oh wow, okay. Uh where well, you need the alternative angle is here you could see from the moment it hit his he hit it with the outside of his right boot, for anyone who hasn't seen it, and it starts kind of uh, Roberto Carlos style miles outside the post before bending beautifully into the top corner it's helped aesthetically by the fact the keeper doesn't even move all he can do is stand and turn agape at what is happening um, it is just a brilliant goal for so many reasons it's so unique like I, I was watching um, match the day earlier today and Alexis McAllister over the weekend for Liverpool scored a brilliant strike where it's like a bouncing ball and he struck it really sweetly into the top corner. And I I think the commentator said he may never score a better one than that. And I was like, he's just kicked it really hard and and it's gone into the top. You know, we see those goals a lot. You do not see what Wes Burns did ever, really. And it was special for that reason. Uh, So all credit to him. Hope it gets the accolades that it deserves. I feel sorry for Wesley Hoot that his uh, strike won't even go down as goal of
1: the day. Both Wesley as well. A couple of Wesleys. What was Jabelo up to this weekend? It's for <laughs> Stoke.
0: <laughs> Get him on, Alex.
1: <laughs> That's remarkable. Have you confused former Coventry winger, Wesley Jabelo Yeah. With Brazilian striker Wesley. Correct. We're being overrun by Wesleys What's, in the championship. But that
0: Wesley has a... Um, he's, he's not just Wesley. Moraes?
1: Yes. There you go. Wesley Marais. Wesley Reckon awesome. he's ever done a Trivella?
0: What's what's uh, yeah? He calls it the Burns. Uh, what's Wesley Jabello up to?
1: Oh, Jabello uh, was was one of the lively Coventry from abroad signings that didn't pay off, but obviously Gus Harmer made that made that process worth every penny anyway.
0: He's uh, he's had a tough time. Okay, he was at Boulogne, uh, played eleven games. Um, then he went to UTA Arad. In the Romanian Premier League, uh, which is where he has stayed. But he's now in the Romanian second division playing for Ardegas
1: Petesti. I actually think Coventry played pretty well in this game outside of the first 10 minutes where, yeah, the the setup, the high line was pierced twice. So Broadhead's assist for Hurst for the first goal was lovely. Broadhead was then played in in behind, um, run from deep, not tracked. And you'd think for someone of his quality... Could have done a lot better than that. Then Burns makes it two nil, and it is easier to play when you're two 0 down. But I think it's still worth pointing out that I think Coventry still looked pretty good, and it was and it's broadly been a, a very positive month or so for them. um Quite a, a, a quite a funny looking own goal from Brandon Williams at the end. I mean, he does get absolutely cleaned out. It's one
0: of my favourite own goals. Yeah, what a game for favourite things. What a weekend! But it was like Ellis Sims. Barges him in the air to the extent I have, think Brandon Williams has no idea where he is but he manages to connect beautifully and send it into the yeah. far corner it's a foul
1: isn't it definitely a foul yeah. <laughs> um, well I think the last word on this should be unanimously we both think that Wes Burns should win the Puskas Award for his 20 yard Truvella his 20 yard Quaresma George, what about Southampton? They've won both games to nil, uh, beating Bristol City in midweek. We were there for that one. Very well looked after. Thank you to Southampton for having us. Um, and they beat Cardiff 2-0 on Saturday, which looked a little more comfortable, a little more controlled than the win that we saw against Bristol City, regardless a very strong week or so. I mean, and they're absolutely flying as well. I think it's eight wins and three draws in their last 11 games, Southampton. And they're they're a team that are on 1.995 PPG after 19 games, which includes when they lost four in a row. Interesting season, interesting team.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was very different to what we saw in midweek, where in the first half they struggled to get into a a groove at all and it was Bristol City had the better chances in the game. Um, Interesting post-match from Russell Martin that day, where maybe it was just... A build up of tension, but he he seemed really keen to kind of labor the point that their second half performance was as good as they played all season. I mean, you and I were there, and I don't think either of us necessarily agreed having seen them on other times of the season, albeit not in the flesh, although you have seen them once in the flesh. But they definitely didn't play better on that day where they lost to Ipswich. Um, but it's um, yeah, it was it was kind of unlike him in a way because he's normally really measured in what he says, and maybe it was it was kind of performative in terms of. Just keeping the his players and, and squad on side, um, but this was very different. Where they they won that game thanks to a, a moment of quality from Carl Walker Peters with a shot um, from outside the area that went into the top left-hand corner. Um, Martin said, off the game. He was annoyed that that was why they won the game because he wished they'd done it from one of their kind of more uh, clear where they're the architects of their own um, quality. Which I don't know loads of that moments, but here. Again, it was a long-range strike from Adam Armstrong that got them in front. We know he can do that. It was a brilliant shot, left foot into the far corner, kind of similar in, in style to Walker Peters's uh, and their first shot in the game. And then four minutes later, their second shot in the game was a, a header from Adam Armstrong, where a deflected cross looped up, and somehow he, the smallest man on the pitch, probably, um, was able to leap in between two the two defenders and prod it home. So, unlike in the City game, they had. Two shots and they scored two goals and found themselves 2 out past 15 minutes. Um, from then on, you know they still, as they always do, had a lot of the ball. Um, but most impressively was how they kind of saw the game out. Where and the you know Ryan Fraser had the best chance, but there were plenty of opportunities for players. Arrebo hit the post. Mara went close late on. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, it's been a, a really good week for Southampton. Where um, I would almost say the performances has kind of improved incrementally as the week has gone on. Um, against two kind of awkward op- opponents in, in Bristol City and Cardiff but all having said that two opponents that they would expect to, to beat and you know we talk a lot about Leeds being you know trying to chase down Ipswich and um, and Leicester but Southampton are just one point behind Leeds at the moment so um, if they can maintain this rate of picking up points then then they have to be included in that chat.
1: They look a lot more sure of themselves defensively as 10 goals conceded in their last 12. I mean, Bristol City did have probably the two best chances of the game in the first half in midweek, um, but Southampton got that bit of quality from Kyle Walker-Peters and then saw it out with relative comfort. I mean, they saw this one out with huge comfort. Um, Cardiff had a, a mini burst after halftime, but in the last half an hour of the game, 13 shots to one in Saints' favour when they're 2-0 up. That's exactly what you want to see from... Uh, russell martin started play pure control it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle a run it's only for the fans after all it's only pressure you got this adidas Uh, And George, heading into the game week, we had a a big one on Saturday lunchtime at West Brom against Leicester City. Now, we spoke about it on the betting show. We both thought there was a good chance that a strong Corboran game plan could cancel out Moresca's Leicester. We thought that West Brom could do what they did to Ipswich. We thought that they could do what Leeds did to Leicester a couple of weeks ago and beat them. This game was very, very, very low margin for 70 minutes and then we got 25 minutes of chaos.
0: Yeah, we did. I mean, it was it was chaos in terms of the goals that went in. I think in terms of the way the game looked, it was as we probably expected with both defences kind of being on top for large parts. Both teams really struggling, especially in the first half, to create anything of note. Uh, Kipre hit the post from a set piece. Um, but neither side were, and Mavadidi as well with a deflected shot at the near post, but it was a pretty cagey affair with both sides, um, as we said going into the game, been pretty reliant on their good defensive record, and that showed until Kin and Dewsbury Hall headed home from what was a brilliant cross from from Ndidi down the right-hand side, Um, again Ndidi showing a different side to his game than we would necessarily seen before this and it felt like that was probably going to be the game that the one the goal that won the game it felt like for the first 70-75 minutes it was probably going to be a, a, the case of, of whoever scored would win the game otherwise we would finish nil-nil but as you alluded to um, from a set piece there was an almighty scramble with Josh Madger popping up and prodding the ball home um, to give baggies a point or what they thought was a point that they thought they probably deserved now what happened next really surprised me um, where you know, we talk a lot, and I will stand by it f- forever, that Carlos Corcoran is a bit of a master when it comes to protecting what he's got. Now, normally that is a lead. But you would think, even though they're at home, having been 1-0 down against Leicester, having restored parity, I would have thought that they would settle for that. Yet they threw, what, nine men forward uh, in the 94th minute. And when the ball broke, uh, Ian Acho found Dewsbury Hall, and suddenly it was Dewsbury Hall and Winks. Um, up against uh, one defender, uh, sorry, and, and the goalkeeper, and he squared it to Winks, who managed to to slide in and just about tuck it into the bottom right-hand corner to send the away fans absolutely delirious mm-hmm. and to break the hearts of of, baggy, of, uh, of the West, Br- West Brom fans. Now, I mean, yeah, a, a, a massive moment. You think in, in Leicester season, it'll be really frustrating for West Brom who put in a, a decent display to effectively concede their last two goal- last two shots that they conceded. But I don't know what you thought. I just I, I was. So many other managers, you'd be like, oh, but they've been a bit naive there. I was just amazed that that was a corporate side that allowed that to happen.
1: Winks murdered them. Very good. 46 points from 19 games Leicester have. It's absolutely unbelievable. And what's what makes it, A, more unbelievable, but B, quite good news for the rest of the division and for us, for entertainment purposes, is that Ipswich have 45 points from 19 games. Leeds have 38 points from 19 games at two points per game Saints 37 points from 19 games It's a pretty special group of four at the top yeah. um, The flip side, the bleakness of it Is that three of the four of them came, came down, down from the Premier League Which we don't love But you know, if you, if you remove that, if you take the teams on their merits We have got some pretty strong teams And hopefully it should be a really interesting uh, automatic promotion race At the very least
0: I think it definitely will be. It, it seems, um, there doesn't seem to be any reason from where I'm sitting to think that either Leeds or or Leicester or Ipswich will suddenly massively drop off. Um, it does, you know, even though I said earlier that Southampton's point style means they have to be in the conversation. I think by basically any measure, like whether it's watching them, whether it's the underlying numbers, it does feel like Southampton are the, are the fourth of the four right now, but things can change. You know, things can, like form can be turned on its head. It wasn't that long ago that Southampton were miles off when they went through that poor that poor run of form and they're the ones who are improving. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have probably four into two. I still think it's way too early um, to... You, know, that you have some people assuming that Ipswich are going to fall away and you have some people assuming that Leicester are going to walk it when actually they're only separated by a point. I still definitely think that Leicester, Leicester's... Um, the points gap between Leicester and Leeds is not representative of where either side are now. That was shown the other day as well in the, in the game they played against each other. And I'm, you know, for, for Ipswich, I, I really think it's going to be, you know, they've got a tough game coming up this weekend where they go to Middlesbrough, um, but it's whether or not they can cling on to Leicester until they meet. And that's going to be an unbelievable game. I can't, I can't wait to see how that goes especially when you consider Leicester's games you know they've they've been beaten by Middlesbrough they've been beaten by Leeds they've just edged past West Brom you know that Leicester are not a side I keep going back to it like Burnley last season who when they come up against basically anyone you can be like well they're probably going to win by x amount of goals with, with Leicester it's always seemingly by single goals or it's always a tight game um so I think it's Boxing Day isn't it Switch Leicester Mm bring it on
1: that's exciting uh, we got some more detail on West Brom's huge and growing concerns off the field coming at the end of the championship segment George's interview with Alistair from action for Albion um, but more happiness George down towards the bottom of the table Sheffield Wednesday three Blackburn one Wednesday. Danny Danny Roel it's fun that they play that full time isn't mm. it that is funny um, they're loving Danny Royal. Uh they knew They knew that he'd had an impact, that his coaching was having an impact, but the the, the points return was not necessarily reflecting it until midweek. Injury time equaliser against league leaders Leicester fully, fully deserved. They went into this game with confidence and they beat Blackburn 3-1. They had to cope with an early injury to Dom Iorfa. Uh, Roel also made a switch at half-time. Marvin Johnson coming uh, on for George Byers. Johnson scored the second goal. Everything that he he decided went well here. Uh, Windass playing off the left, looking really dangerous, setting up Bailey Kadamateri for the first goal early on. Now, August 2005, Bradford versus Bournemouth. Mm. Dean Windass sets up Danny Kadamateri for a Bradford goal. Danny's son, Bailey, three months old at the time. Dean's son, Josh, 11 years old at the time. 18 years later, Windas cutback, back, Kadamatri finish, his first senior league goal. Uh, he's been scoring tons for their under-21s uh, this season. And Roel has basically shifted Gregory to the side. He says, Bailey Kadamatri brings me the energy, the presence, the pressing that I want. And he clearly has an eye for goal as well. I'm really excited about his emergence. And look, Blackburn got it back into the game. Smodic scored again. He's too clear of Adam Armstrong at the top of the goal scoring charts. But Wednesday defended well in the most part. And things, you know, somewhat fell their way. I know that um, Thomason really wanted a foul in the build up to the second goal. It looked like, you know, one of those blocks that I think is probably just about OK. But I would understand if people disagree with that. Now we're Wednesday in Royal. You know, similar impact to Fuentes and QPR. Mm-hmm. With Wednesday, they are still a full 10 points from safety, yes. right? So if it's going to happen, it's likely going to take time. Do you think the performances can stay at this level? And do you think the fans will continue to be all in on roll, even if it does happen slowly but surely? Are they going to be able to, you know, keep focused, I guess, and keep positive if things tick into next year, into February, into March, and they're still down at the bottom?
0: Well, I don't think it has to take that long because there are teams at the bottom of the championship who are not picking up points. Um, And so I think a short burst of results will be enough probably to to bridge that gap fairly quickly. The one thing I would urge is a bit of caution. You know, they've beaten Blackburn here at home. Um, and played really well, and there's clearly a big uptick in terms of performance level since Cisco Munozhi's, uh reign. They play the Blackburn side here, who we know, in a kind of similar way to Plymouth Argyle, like Blackburn give up chances consistently because of the way they play, because they play expansive football, they are a side who give up chances and and Blackburn created loads in this game it was a a really end-to-end game with plenty of chances at each end at each at each end Wednesday deserving of their win but a game that could have really gone either way they were probably more impressed against Leicester where they created more against Leicester than most teams do but it's two home games back to back where they picked up four points that in itself um, comes off the back of three defeats in a row albeit W Wednesday fans who say the performances were better than those than those results even in the 4-0 loss against Millwall where you know by no means on the balance of play was it a 4-0 game they've got back-to-back trips now away games at Stoke and Norwich um, we have to see this continue there's no reason why it won't and I, and I think Roel um, is showing quickly that he's been a, a brave appointment but also someone who clearly has something about him in order to get this kind of um, reaction out of the out of the sides but let's you know all i'm trying to say i think with cifuentes that there feels to me like a more tangible shift in terms of like general performance level where qpr have gone from being a relic you know a, a relegation or a relegation zone team to being far far better than that with wednesday i want to see it a little bit more or you know i know wednesday fans this might be like holding we play leicester and blackburn they're two very good sides i get that um but in Blackburn, he got a side who give away a lot of chances in Leicester. It was a, a brilliant performance from 1-0 down. Let's see how it goes in a couple of difficult away trips. But yeah, I mean, they're right now, the, the probability of Sheffield Wednesday getting relegated now compared to when Royal was appointed, even though he oversaw some defeats to start with, is, is far, far more likely that they stay up.
1: Tough one for Blackburn, but you know, no great shame. They'd won the previous two games. They'd won six of their previous eight uh, and I think they'll be a little bit uh, yeah, a bit more patched up net in the next game. The, the absences that they had meant there was little for Thomason to use off the bench, or rather little, that he felt would make an impact uh, despite being behind. Uh, late, late winner at Ashton Gate on Sunday, Norwich beating Bristol City 2-1 from behind. It was another tumultuous week within the Norwich City fan base. There was a I was in a fan forum. It was certainly questions being put to Delia, uh, to Mark Atancio as well. And certainly the answers from Delia Smith and Michael were not going down well with the fan base. Um, There was a ton of anger uh, at the way that they perceive they're being treated. Um, And yet... They go to Bristol City, they make it three wins in four, David Wagner on the pitch celebrating down the touchline after Adam Eder um, scored what is his third winning goal in the last 10 minutes of a game uh, this season. Only three Norwich players since 1990 have scored three winning goals after the 80th minute. Um, That one from NCFC numbers on Twitter, the the other names, Grant Holt, Temu Puki. pretty good uh, company uh, to lead. I think that the idea the feeling is that Ida has not led the line that well in the absence of Ashley Barnes and Josh Sargent. But clearly he he does or he has shown an instinct to pop up with these important late goals. I was quite impressed by Bristol City in the first half against Southampton. Yeah, I think broadly they played OK here again in the first half. Some really nice moves once they got warmed up. Uh, their goal was a, a nice bit of play and finished off by Jason Knight. The fans are pretty unhappy as you would be after back-to-back defeats, as you would be after losing at home to a team that, that you don't perceive to be in great shape. For me, like I think this is broadly what it's going to be like under Manning for the foreseeable. Some good bits, which there were in both games, some less good bits, some tight games that they'll win, some tight games that they'll lose. And I guess like overall the idea is that he'll get more out of a squad that's fine but nothing special at this level through really good coaching and tactics. It's not guaranteed to happen. It obviously hasn't happened overnight, but then again unlike QPR and Wednesday we're banging on about their new managers like the previous level of those teams was so low that there was a lot lot of space to move into, a lot of progression to make. With Bristol City like what was realistic in terms of how much better they could get than when they, when when Pearson left. But I think that's that's the fans
0: main issue is that I think they would probably agree with you. But if that's the case, they're asking, why was Nigel Pearson sacked? Like a, a, the point? a man, yeah. manager we get on well with, who has us operating kind of where they expected to be with a lot of injuries. Like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the, the fans. I'm not going to tell them how they should feel. But that immediately means that expectation levels are going to be, well, if this isn't good enough, if that wasn't good enough, sorry, so therefore we're making a change, then what should should we now expect to be a top six side? Now, because Liam Manning wasn't really, and nothing to do with him, but wasn't really a welcome appointment from the fan base, it means that the reaction to his tenure or the start of his tenure is going to be overwhelmingly emotional and therefore results-driven rather than process-driven, I would say. Like, Bristol City's two performances in the last week – could easily have yielded six points i would say where they could have gone ahead in that first half if conway puts away his chance um if sykes puts away his or bazuna doesn't make the save from sykes and they could have won easily you know they were 1-0 up before a, a kind of fluke own goal sets them back and then i scores in the 95th minute like that the performances weren't miles away and i think things would be looking so different because that would be nine points from nine but city fans probably would be over pearson now realistically with exactly the same level of performance, but instead. They've lost both games. They've lost three of three or four, and fans are now saying, "Well, this isn't any better." Like the only thing I would say is, if you look through the EFL right now, there are, and this is coming from someone who wants to make it a, my life's work to get rid of the, the whole new manager bounce narrative, but there are a couple of managers in the EFL who are having really transformative effects on their side. You've got Sifuentes at QPR. You've got Royal, who we just mentioned there at, um, at Sheffield Wednesday. You've got Daryl Clark at Cheltenham and a couple of others that don't pop into my mind. But the consistency with all of them is that none of them started particularly well. Like a couple of jaws, the best case for, for QPR. Royal lost his first few games. Clark lost his first couple of games. Like it, it's it's not a bounce. The, the time it will take for a manager to implement the, their philosophy and get their players to do, you know, if you do get any manager bounce, it's got nothing to do with the manager. It's just variance. It's just what happens. Whereas you can see tangible effects after a longer period of time. And we're getting to the stage where hopefully we'll see that now from Bristol City. But that's the, the problem now in my eyes with the club is that it's, it's so fractured that the only way that people are going to stop thinking about the Pearson decision and buy into what Manning is doing is, is basically to win games. And whilst they're not doing that, given that Manning won't be going anywhere anytime soon, I assume, you know, I, th- I think he's going to have free reign for the season, I would expect, unless things get really bad. means that it's, it's not going Ashton, Ashton Gate isn't going to be a very happy place to go for the time being.
1: Home Park's a very happy place because Argyle, injury time winner, at Stoke. And it was a great example of the injury time winner as well, because it was the the third bite of the cherry. One shot had been saved. The second shot had been cleared off the line. It broke for Randall. Smashes it in. Mm. Argyle win. They did. They've got the sixth best home record in the league with six wins from 10, scoring t- just under two and a half goals per game at home. 86% of their points have come at home. And I reckon if you'd asked an Argyle fan pre-season, they'd have said something along, along the lines are, if we're good at home, we'll probably be good enough to stay up. And they would have been confident of being good at home because of how... Unbelievable they were last season. Um, This was a back and forth game. There were some uh, good moments. Tyrese Campbell uh, running in behind to to finish for Stoke to put them ahead. Bundu equalising after a great cross from Kessler Hayden. And then chances for both sides after that. Bundu had a a really good opportunity. Ryan Mailly had a really good opportunity as well. But Argyle sort of eased their way into things. Um, Azaz and Kundal, as they always seem to be, heavily involved in what is some really attractive and, and kind of enterprising attacking play. I note that, you know, that stat I read out earlier about Somerville, 1.02 non-penalty goals and assists per 90. In second equal, Jaden Philogene Badass and Sammy Smoddix on 0.87 per 90. Then Ryan Hardy and Luke Kundal of Argyle come fourth and fifth for non-penalty goals and assists per 90. So those aren't even the... You know, those aren't even the ones people talk about. They talk about Whitaker, they talk about Mumba, they talk about Azaz, but they get contributions from all over uh, and a really, really good win here. And there were three draws in the championship uh, Swansea won, Huddersfield won. Uh, Huddersfield going ahead early. Jaheim Headley with a long run after an interception, a low cross uh, turned in by Ben Cabango. Uh, Headley started four of the last five for Huddersfield. We liked him at Harrogate last season on loan, so it's interesting to see him um, playing more minutes, albeit. I think it's more out of uh, absences than anything else. He's playing a kind of left-wing role. I think he played right-wing in the second half. I mean, I think of Headley as a really tenacious 1v1 defender. I think he's got a really interesting future in the game. I don't think he's likely to get a ton of goal contributions uh, going forward, but great to see him getting a minutes, and hopefully that'll help his development. Uh, and a quality strike from Charlie Patino to equalise right at the end. And Millwall, Sunderland, 1-1 as well. Uh, just like Kessler Hayden, we saw a great cross from Norton Cuffey. Uh, on to Nisbet on a plate for Nisbet and he said Bon Appetit Kevin and he's tucked in he's finished it uh, Sunderland penalty pen for you did Leonard touch the ball or not
0: I don't no comment is that allowed I just because I'm seeing a lot of people argue about it I think it's one of those Well, it's different scored angles different uh, for different needs
1: yeah Clark scored for 1-1 one, one, and then Birmingham 0 Rotherham 0 Uh, was a good away performance and point for managerless Rotherham. Nathan Jones was there watching them, George. But apparently today Mm. has pulled out of the race, if that's the right word for for it. Um, For Birmingham, a lot of fume. Not a defeat, but in theory, with respect to Rotherham, this is in theory their easiest game of the season, given that Rotherham had one point from nine away before this, and losing their away games by more than two goals a game on average. But the Millers were the better side; they had the better chances. Uh, it's eight games under Rooney, five points, fewest in the division. In that time, the underlying numbers uh, don't offer much respite either.
0: And if QPR and Sheffield Wednesday's uptick in form continues, and maybe if Rotherham make a decent appointment,
1: then Huddersfield then, going okay?
0: Yeah, it's it's you know, it it's always the beginning of the season. There are assumptions made as to what is possible and what's impossible. And I think for Birmingham fans, understandably, and the owners and everything else, when they were up where they were, when John Eustace was there, it felt like the the floor was probably mid-table or lower mid-table, whereas now, look how quickly they've dropped. Like, there's, there's no reason why Birmingham are too good to be embroiled in this mess Learn more at marines.com.
1: Time for George's chat with Alistair from Action for Albion, a fan-led protest group highlighting the concerns surrounding the ownership of West Bromwich Albion.
0: Yeah, delighted to be joined on the pod today by Alistair Jones from Action for Albion. Alistair, you know, I say delighted to have you here. It's obviously not for a great reason. Um, For those listening, you know, a lot of our listeners will, of course, know uh, some of the Plight at the moment surrounding West Bromwich Albion off the pitch, even though things are going on, going quite well on it. Um, but for those that don't, you know, could you give us a, a quick potted history, I guess, of, of of recent times and why there is such concern?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, George, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. A brief plotted history of where, where we come from. So West Brom were bought in 2016 when we were in the Premier League by a gentleman called Guachan Lai, who purchased for Albion. For a figure reported to be around £200 million at the time, it turns out it was around about £218 million, which obviously now he seems an obscene amount of money just a few years on. Um, at the time, it was the height of the, the Chinese superpower sort of thing, trying to get into... Uh, the uh, inter-premiership football and European football. So I think there was us, Wolves, uh, Birmingham, Villa, all around the same sort of time. And then Inter Milan, 18 uh, Milan, the various, Southampton, another one. There were there were lots of, of Chinese ownership around that time. And obviously it was a short, sharp sort of thing when just when the Chinese Super League was starting to go and remember players like Hawk and Oscar left from Ch- Chelsea, it's a bit like Saudi Arabia are right now, but I think Saudi Arabia are going to be here a lot longer than the Chinese, where it came very adamant, very quickly, um, that it wasn't going to work. We were a little bit sort of left holding the, the, holding the baby, really, I suppose. And um, what I think was made aware to, from the from Guachan Lai, he didn't realise the predicament that rele- relegation would bring. So we were a self-sustaining business model in the Premier League, and that's all well and good. That's easy to do in the Premier League. It can be self-sustaining. When you go into the championship, it's a whole different factor. And then, obviously, there was a little bit of a perfect storm, I suppose, with um, the uh, cu- with the pandemic that came in. And then we had a short, a sharp shock March last year, um, in March 2021, where it became apparent from our accounts that Guatemal had borrowed money from West Bromwich Albion and promised to pay it back. And now that is the third time. The last promise was early in the new year of this year. I think it's fair to say December. Probably past that time that it's early in the new year. So in total, and and this, this, this is not all because of him. the The, the club is owed, he's owed roughly around twelve million pounds from Guachan Light in unpaid loans from the from the club. Interestingly, the five million pound loan that he got from Wisdom Smart was just for a fifty thousand um, pounds interest. As fixed we've had to borrow in january 20 million pounds at an a, a interest rate of around 14.5 percent to keep the club trading and this just this lasting monday a week ago it was announced that we've had to borrow further funds from msd um to keep the club going until the takeover in place that can has kicked as far down the road as we can now so we've got loans approximately they haven't stipulated what the amount is for this loan considerably less than the last one but we would estimate between five and ten million pounds so literally we've now got a finite time where we think that's three months money and the reason why we think that is that the 20 million pound loan obviously the parachute money is now finished we get 28 million pounds worth of parachute money the year before last this is our first year since the Premier League, since we got to the Premier League first time in 2002, the West Bromwich Albion have been without any money from the Premier League, whether that be from participation or parachutes. This season was the first time we've not had that. So we've had £28 million taken off uh turnover overnight. And normally you would go to your shareholders then for. Uh, some investment back into the business we can't obviously do that but um for, from the the point of view the the 20 million we also pay had Burnley pay us six million pounds for Dara O'Shea who had a minimum release clause of seven million pounds but we sold him for six on the proviso that we had that all up front so that 26 million shortfall it doesn't really take much of a, a mathematical genius to work out that we probably need between 5 and 10 million for another three months worth of trading. We're essentially going to cash converters to to pay the wages and that obviously cannot continue. So it's absolute paramount that we get sold and took over immediately. Otherwise, we're in real trouble.
0: With MSD, you know a lot of people will know of MSD after they were involved at, at Derby County before things um, went went pretty wrong there. It's, it's probably worth pointing out just for the sake of balance, you know that they've they've had dealings with Southampton, with Burnley, with Sunderland, um, with kind of less disastrous degrees, um, but clearly in the position that West Brom are in at the moment, you know what are the in your eyes at least if we get to the end of the season and Carlos Corbran and his side are, are unable to get the club promoted into the Premier League. And there are no actual, you know, realistic possible new owners for the football club. What state do you think that would leave West Bromwich in?
3: It was quite simply, I and mean, this isn't scaremongering or fearful. We won't get to the end of the season without a takeover. It's that simple. We're running out of money now. We think, I think it's a, a very good guess, guess and, a, and a, an estimation that we've got 12 weeks to get this concluded. And if not, it won't get to the end of the season. We'll be in real proper trouble. I will point out MSD. I've got no problem with MSD. MSD provide a service um, and it was the least worst option at the time. As I say, you have three choices. You have investment from the shareholder. That wasn't possible. Possible sell Hopefully that's going to happen, but wasn't possible. Or getting the money from a loan. MSD have acted cordially. They've done exactly what they said on the tin. It's not their fault. They provided us with a cash investment vehicle that we needed at the time. So... In fact, in some respects, it's probably added a little bit of a security blanket that no further money could be taken out of the club because MSD would protect our their assets because everything's secured against the club and all of its assets, if that makes sense. So if I if I was trying, if if was it looked like I was trying to put the blame on MSD, that's not the case. It, that, that they're a business and they provided a solution for us at that time. Um, there's only one person to blame, or well, possibly two, with a with previous guy that sold us, but... Um, we've been run abhorrently for years he's absent owner he's been twice in six years these are all statements of fact they're they're not just scurrilous scurrilous rumours that that he hasn't been at the club he has no interest in the club whatsoever and it's something that's just gone very wrong he wants out as much as we do. We set up October last year. And in a year, we've now got 12,000 social media followers. We we really tried hard to make sure that we pro- pro- progressed in the right way by offering uh, a, a definitely being above board, planned, strategic and everything we do. But the most important thing is communicating with the club. And I've got to say, the hierarchy at the club, Ron Gorelader has now left the club and in his, in his position now is Mark Miles, who's been a club employee for 20-odd years. They've, they have continued to communicate and dialogue with us and they understand that we all we want to do is help the club. We have no interest in anything apart from we want our club to be better and we want a new ownership so we can give Carlos and the team what they deserve, which is more backing and some financial security. The, Carlos, I've said this many times privately, but I'll say it publicly. I don't think people understand what an important job Carlos Corbin has done. Until five or ten years down the line, he's made us desirable. Uh, last this time last year, or well, just a few weeks ago, we were bottom of the league. When Steve Bruce left, he's now turned us into a club that's comfortably in the playoffs. We were, we were three points or a couple of points away from the playoffs at the end of last season. He's done an absolutely incredible job with one hand tied behind his back and we will always support the team and the players on the pitch. It's never been about, we've got to separate the two entities and West Bromwich, Alvion fans and we're very proud that we've helped in this. We've separated the two entities. We haven't got a problem with the football club. We've got a problem with the owner and they're not necessarily the same thing.
0: In terms of you know, you mentioned you think you've got twelve weeks in order to find a a, a buyer in order to save a club. January is coming up. You know, I saw in a in an article on the, on the on the BBC Sport website, there was a comment from a, I think it must have been a club official or someone saying that there was no plans for a fire sale in January. Um, although the wage budget wage budget would have to come down in order to enable the the, the the redistribution of funds to the Premier League, which we'll get onto in a second. Given that you do, I mean, the squad. Let's let's be frank, and I think it shows what a great job Carlos Correia is doing. That the squad isn't full of players who you'll be able to sell for the kind of money that you even sold Shea for. Like there aren't those kind of assets. I mean, really? Diangana possibly Thomas Asante, possibly Jed Wallace at 29, possibly. But again, you're not going to raise the kind of funds that are needed. But is there the potential, even with Corbran, possibly, to raise enough funds in January just to help buy more time? Uh, possibly. Um, I think it's very difficult because January is a, a, a seller's,
3: isn't a is exactly a seller's market is anyway, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a very difficult time to sell players in January. The, the one that's potentially possible and that wouldn't have any real exposure into the first team, maybe Josh Griffiths, who's an England under-21 goalkeeper that's on the bench uh, and he's a homegrown talent. So obviously with FFP, that can help because it's pure profit as well. He's one that potentially we could potentially look at getting a decent fee, five to eight million pounds, maybe a little bit more that could buy us a little bit more, be absolutely right in what you say. We've got a lot of professionals that are on huge money for this championship, for the championship and probably not, Many saleable assets. In fairness, we've probably our biggest saleable asset would have been DK, but he's been out for nine and two years, on or off. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very, it's a very difficult position to be in, and it's as I say, I think you're absolutely right. It's a testament to the job that Cor- Corburn's done. That the I said on on Saturday, we lost in the last kick of the game but it's no bad thing to have a winning mentality. These guys have had two years that have been used to losing and, and for a manager to turn that round and the squad to have a mentality that they're playing against the top of the league and scoring the last minute and want to push on. Yes, we got done and there's lessons to be learned from that, but isn't it refreshing for an Albion fan to have a team that's pushing to to beat the leaders at home with the last minute. Last minute didn't work out, but it could have been on the other side of the coin. So again, these are established, experienced professionals that have bought into Carlos Corbran and his methods and it's really refreshing to see. I just hope and pray that the new t- the new people come in as soon as I possibly can to help him get the opportunity he deserves.
0: And just on a wider point, because there'll, there'll be a lot of people listening who support clubs who've all either been in some kind of existential crisis in the past, You know, looking at the moment, possibly, you look at Reading fans and their Before We Die movement as well. And the sad fact is that even if West Bromwich Albion get bought, and Reading get bought, and, and their issues uh, are, are a memory fairly soon. There will be other clubs, unless until things change, who find themselves in a similar position. Now we have, of course, yeah. um, the the fan led review and the findings of that that are hopefully going to be implemented fairly soon in terms of an independent regulator, in terms of um, the the, owner, the good the fit and proper owners test changing, in terms of changing the way that um, a parachute payment to used and also de incentivizing the ridiculous. Wealth gap between the Championship and the Premier League, which creates a, a culture where you're getting clubs yeah. gambling consistently to try and achieve something that they can't all achieve. How you know, having lived through this and having you know fronted a a fan-led group protesting against the results of of some of these measures that haven't been changed as of yet, how important do you feel it is to see change within football to protect our pyramid?
3: Well. That's a really, really good question. And I echo every word you've just said, to be absolutely honest with you. I've said on many um, programmes like this and podcasts like this that I've had the fortune to come on. One of the most proud things that we we have at Action for Albion is that we, we've become a wider community. And we talk with Catherine and Mark, Mark, uh, Michael at the South Before We Die, um, same with End. And we, we all work together and we work up share ideas that have worked and different. Every club's different and every opportunity and every protest needs to be different. Reading are a little bit further down the line than we are and they've obviously chose the direct actions. I'd never criticize anything that anybody gets off the backside voluntarily to help with their football club. What I will say is absolutely agree with you 100%. the end of the day, last season, there were 22 out of 24 championship clubs that weren't sustainable. One got relegated in Blackpool and the other one got promoted in Luton. We all know the historic problems with Luton. So they were started with a, a clean sheet of paper, if you like, and credit to them. I've got no problem with that at all. But... Football's broken, but it's very easy to fix. What really annoys me and gets narks me, and I've said it many times, that when the Premier League, the European Super League breakaway was going to happen, the the rest of the Premier League moaned and whined and did everything they possibly could to stop that. What they can't see is they're doing exactly the same to the seventy two teams that are below them, that they seek to attract. To do to them, if it's not good enough for them to do for the top six, why they, why are they treating the other 72 in the below the pyramid? We've got the best pyramid in the world, that's we've got the fifth big, biggest league in the world, and it's the second biggest in, 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 in its own country. It's broken, that it could so easily be fixed. and I'm not saying that Albion wouldn't vote some of these things. The biggest problem we have is look last week or a couple of weeks ago at the vote that they couldn't even get agreed. That you could get loans from Saudi Arabia into January because seven clubs voted that it's okay to do. How in the world can that be right? Talk about looking after your own. It's all they don't look at it in the wider aspects aspect of the pyramid of football. Clubs like Sheffield United, Crystal Palace, people like that that have got uh, and many others. Wolves were announced they've got a chance of being relegated. They're voting for these things that could actually harm them in the in the very near future. Mm. It's just so naive and such a inch little way to look at things. So people need to stand outside the bubble and look at what will really happen if they don't sort this out. And it, and let's face it, let's call them spade a spade. They've had the chance since 1992 to get this right and they've failed abysmally. So now it should be taken out of their hands and an independent re- regulator. They've had the chance and they blew it. I think it's about time that it's changed. And
0: just a final words, you know, for those who, who are listening who um, may not be Aggies fans, but will certainly feel for your plight. Is there anything people can do? Um, is there anything people can do, can do to help? Look, I mean, from Albion's point of view, the the time for mass protests,
3: we believe at this moment in time, are past. But there's nothing to protest about. The guy wants to sell probably just as much as we want him to go, and if not more. All we're trying to do is get exposure and very kindly that you've allowed us on things like this, national media. We've got some really good links with national media now that we've got we speak to regularly and then push into the political arena to try to get the independent regulator happening soon people say well what's you got to do with it but it's too late it's never too late you, you, you never ever want to see this happening to any club in the pyramid it's not right absent owners and the way that absent owners at Reading and West Brom and then Sheffield Wednesday questionable ownership as well these owners that haven't got the best interests of the football club to heart Need to be weeded out and dealt with, and that's what the independent regulator should do. But literally, all we say is thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to, to come on and showcase where we are. We hope, um, that we've made some pertinent points for anybody else, not just West Brom fans for the future. And if any, any other clubs ever in the predicament, it's a football community. We're more than well, uh, more than happy to talk to anybody that wants some advice on what we did that worked, and, and obviously, maybe not works as well. Um, we're happy to to talk to anybody but let's hope it never happens to anybody else uh,
0: thank you very much Alistair for taking the time to talk to us and uh, I think I can speak on behalf of the whole not the top 20 community if not the whole EFL community that we hope that things uh, get better fairly soon and an owner is found uh, and you guys can move on with the football club with, uh, without these concerns and worries about their existential threat rather than just what's going on on the pitch
3: brilliant thanks George thanks very much cheers
1: there was one league one game over the weekend and Portsmouth won it 3-0 away at Northampton Town. Now, for me, this is maybe their most impressive victory of the season because Cobblers had been in great form. I think it was three wins in four before that game. Not only that, absences for Portsmouth. Regan Poole is out long-term, who'd been their star man at the back to start the campaign. Joe Morrell suspended for this game. And Colby Bishop, their talisman up top, considered the best striker in League One, was absent as well. But they adapted and other players stepped up. Jack Sparks curled the corner onto the head of big Sean Raggett who headed them in front and then Paddy Lane scored two nice goals. The first one, really clever through ball from Sadie that he finished and the second one, uh, he was the extra man at the back post found by Alex Robertson. Now, Robertson's really catching the eye. Uh, Centre midfielder, on loan from Manchester City, just oozes quality basically in every phase of the game and seems to be coming on so quickly for the for the senior minutes that he's getting. Really exciting. Pompey fans uh, enjoying his performances massively and you can understand why. But a big, big win for them uh, because no one else played. It meant that they regained their spot at the top of the table. A hell of an afternoon for those Pompey fans. A uh, bit of managerial news since last week, George. Sad one. Sad one, friend of the pod and star of our only ever, to this point, live show. Mark Bonner was sacked by Cambridge United. You you never want these to happen when there's such a connection between a manager and a club. Uh, Bonner stood on the terraces as a kid, worked his way up as a coach, as a career coach, got the opportunity. Won promotion, almost out of nowhere. Stayed up, beat Newcastle away in the FA Cup. Stayed up again. Having been backed last season through a really really sticky spot, he's not been back this time round, uh, and he is out at Cambridge. Your thoughts?
0: Yeah, gutted for him. Um, you know, it feels like a very rare occasion where a fan base are both really devastated to lose a manager, but also probably support the decision. Um, you know, last season the decision was made to stick by Bonner he rewarded with that with a with a, a campaign well with a, with a very good run towards the end of the season that saw them safe but I think the drop off in performance level over the last few weeks having started the season pretty well probably doesn't help him um, you know I think the optimism around the club after the first four or five games of the season is that this wouldn't be a campaign where they would be threatened by relegation um, I think the squad as we discussed in our our pre-season shows is much, much weaker than it was previously. You know, the the loss of Sam Smith, of uh, Harvey Nibs, um, of Meetov, You know, these are all players who were really important to all the good things that Mark Bonner did. And yes, they brought in others. You know, admit, Inok Nibiru have had their moments this season, but realistically, I think the squad just looks a bit poorer than it was previously. Um, the issue that, you know, I, I can understand why they've taken the decision that this is the second season in a row. We need to change something. Um, but uh, whether or not Mark Bonner was was the problem here, you know, when you consider this as a league where teams have budgets, four teams have to get relegated, was Bonner the reason why Cambridge were being threatened as being one of those? Possibly, we're going to find out now. I had similar concerns, to be fair, when Cheltenham decided to sack Wade Elliott, but look what Daryl Clark's doing there, which just goes to show that fresh ideas can instigate a change, but I think in terms of the job that Bonner's done, given that he'd never been a manager before, given that he took over the club, as you say, that he supported and worked basically every job at previously. He's he's lived every football fan's dream and, and in doing so has done an incredible job. I'm sure he will get an opportunity soon to manage um, at League One or League Two level. He's too horrible not to in terms of his achievements previously. I also really hope we see him get a job where he doesn't have to overperform. Like you look at League Two right now, there are a couple of sides in League Two with big budgets who aren't performing. You know, one of those jobs has just gone in, in Bradford. You wonder if that, the Salford job might come up again soon. But I would love to see Bonner given the kind of budget where you say, look, you should be, you should be achieving with this rather than having to to kind of swim against the tide. Uh, a, a brilliant bloke and someone who's, who's done an amazing job. So, um, but interesting to see where Cambridge go now. You know, there are good managers on the market. Danny Cowley being one, Neil Harris being another. Um, where maybe... As you say, as well, as I said, those fresh ideas might instigate something of a change. Um, but I think Mark Bonner, certainly the job that he's done has been very impressive. And um, yeah, I'm sure it won't be long until he gets uh, a decent one.
1: And Bristol Rovers have their new manager as well, George. Matt Taylor walks through the doors, won promotion with Exeter, had a year or so at Rotherham where just really, really found it difficult to pick up points uh, regularly. And now finds himself at the Mem. And a general response seems to be like, Yeah, this looks like a pretty nice fit for all parties, which is always pleasing.
0: Definitely. I mean it's a it's a good job for Taylor to come into, um, aside who I think have a really good squad, who have the capabilities I think to to be better than they have been so far this season. Um good for him after getting a you know after getting the sack from Rotherham to come straight into a job probably geographically makes sense for him as well after a long time at Exeter as a player and as a manager um so yeah it's a good job to take on I think Bristol Rovers fans are relieved that they finally got someone in someone whose character is fairly different to the previous incumbent which is also no bad thing um so yeah just a really it looks like one of those smart appointments all around Uh, and I'm excited to see what he'll do with the Bristol Rovers going forward
1: His first league game will be Cheltenham at home on Saturday. It'll be really interesting to see how that goes, what sort of team and tactics he sets up with. And now a chat with Barnsley striker Devontae Cole. haven't heard too much from Devontae before, so it was really interesting to get to know him, get to know his motivations and hear a little bit about this season at Barnsley. How are things, Devontae?
2: Yeah, very good, thank you. But as it can be in the cold weather, of (laughs) course,
1: yeah, you're not wrong. I've been uh, wrapping up for the last few days. Are you a a gloves wearer? Do you you stick a beanie hat on for training, or is that not allowed?
2: Definitely a gloves wearer. I mean, I'd I'd walk out there with just my eyes showing if I could, but that's not quite allowed. (laughs) So for me, it's cover up as much as possible.
1: I love that. Barnsley's last league game included one of the most bizarre. And to my eyes anyway, entertaining goals I think I've ever seen. Sam Crosgrove's late winner against Wickham. I'm not sure the Wickham fans listening would agree, but uh, you'd obviously started that game. I think you'd come off by that point. Um, how did you experience that goal and what was the like reaction in the dressing room afterwards?
2: Yeah, it was a bit wild, really. I think I'd literally just come off so uh, I, I almost missed it, really. I looked up and i just seen the ball dropping. and Sam tapping it in and I was like, what's going on there? And then I said, seeing the ref go in, I mean, their keeper going mad and their players going mad. And then it wasn't Tawata when I saw like the the full video, I was like, "What just happened here? But do you know what? For me, I think I mean, it, it could stand, obviously, in my point of view. I, I want the three points, but I mean, he dropped it, didn't he? So I think if he doesn't drop it, it's not even a discussion. So I think from our point of view, we're buzzing. I think from their point of view, they're thinking it's a foul. and it's one of them, so you're never going to make everyone happy.
1: You guys are going to are going to have a new lease of life when it comes to just giving the goalie a little nudge when they've got the ball in their hands.
2: I think I think everyone's going to go into it after that. I think why not try your luck? See what <laughs> happens.
1: We're sitting here chatting, probably about forty percent of the way through the season. Uh, it started in pretty exciting fashion with with a hat trick on opening day in a seven nil win. Uh, have you had many better days like that in your career?
2: Uh no, I think that obviously being right up there. I don't think you can start a season any better than that 7-0 and you know getting a hat trick and it, it's funny really because we almost banned it after it is like such a great start, but the only way you can go is down really because you, you can't you, you can't top it. And I'm not in a bad way that like we want to go down and perform poorly, but you know, we always want to do as good as we can. But this almost like how, how do you top it? And then you know I saw Bolton one the other day. But it's like one of them, once you win 7-0, it's like, you can't really go anywhere from there, can you? It's, you win 2 oh yeah. It's just that you start so well in the first game. It's just, that's everything <laughs> almost.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the team started really well, yourself as an individual as well, finishing chances for fun. I think you had eight league goals in the first seven games uh, of the season. Uh, you're on 11 sitting here right now. It's a really good, strong start to the season. Um, is there anything in particular that you put your goal-scoring form down to this campaign?
2: Uh, Nothing in particular, to be fair. I think, for me, uh, it's just been kind of, you know, carrying on from where I left off last season. But it's just, I've always backed myself if I get the chances, uh, I'll take them. So, for me, obviously, you know, having the eight and seven is good form, but it's just getting the chances and putting putting them away. So, I think, for me, it's not been a surprise. I feel like I've always believed myself I'll do that. But I just think, at the time, the team is playing really well. You know, I think, not just me, but I think in all games, you know, we're winning by two, three. It wasn't just you one nil, two nil. I think that always that always helps when you teams like free scoring. I think it's only going to be good for strikers.
1: Yeah, I feel like interesting like era to be a number nine. Um I'm sure some pros and some cons compared to previous eras. To, to my eyes, like the way that we talk about the game and particularly when we cover strikers, it feels to me like there's way less focus on. Uh, a number nine has to be scoring a certain amount of goals, or that there's a certain like goals return that is acceptable or unacceptable. Partly because I think analysis of the game has got to the point where, as you've kind of alluded to there, it, you know, a lot of it's not down to you yourself. Clearly, when you have chances, you have to finish them, but broadly, you're going to score plenty if you get a lot of chances, you back yourself as a finisher. Uh, and I wonder if that's something that you've kind of uh, noticed the the further on your career has gone that actually it's it's not just about you it's about how the whole team create chances.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I don't I think as a striker, like my was thought is it's it's always that's my job in the team to to score goals. But I think you know it, it's hard sometimes because you know at the same time then you you're only as good as a team, and if you don't create, then you don't score. Like I know myself, I've, I could go a game or two about having a shot, and I'd be thinking I've not scored. But then again, I've not had a shot, and then that's not always down to you so I just think I think it's changed now whereas I think everyone was saying you know I probably grew up saying as a striker you need need to like the 20 goal mark whereas I think now things are a lot different if you're striking you might hit 10 and a few assists people are still looking at you in the same way which for me I thought I'd rather 20, 100% but I just think with the way the game's going now people are so much more about stats and you know are you assisting or like I don't know recoveries, pressing like Mm -hmm. all of that comes into it now so I just think the emphasis has probably been taken off the goals as much. That's why I think like number nines like growing up watching is there's probably not as many of them around because a lot of people you play nine, you play off the left, off the right. Yeah. It's it's more all round. That's why I think there's only a few nines, which are like Harry Kane's your Haaland, like top level Lewandowski, there's not a lot of them. And when they are there, it's crazy money.
1: Yeah. And it's it's it is filtering down as well into the EFL a little bit that you look at the championship um, the top scorer last year was Chuba Akpom who played in a kind of like a nine and a half number 10 role he normally had a, a fi- you know a nine ahead of him uh, this season it's Sammy Smodics. there's been loads of guys scoring a lot from out wide as well so you know it, that sort of as it always does starts at the top of the game it kind of drifts down what's interesting about League One is that you are part of a really exciting golden boot race but it is it is mostly out and out goal scorers like to what extent are you keeping an eye on that sort of thing even early on in the season
2: I think as a, as a striker, I mean, so as a player, you always keep a little eye on those things. But really, I think you probably don't pay too much attention that, to that until the end of the season when it's like probably like four or five games left and you're thinking, wait, am I ahead or how many goals do I need? So I think for me now, I'm just I'm just focused on scoring goals. And, you know, if I if I do score, I'm happy. If I don't, then you know, I need to look at why I'm not. Mm. But I think probably in the last two months of the season, then I'll probably be like, oh, actually according to boot would be nice because you know you do play for to win things at the end of the day, and that is that would be something really good to have on your
1: record. Yeah, of course. I mean, your your goal scoring numbers very strong this season. They were last season as well with fifteen goals. But you know, all being well, touch wood if if you stay fit, you should be surpassing that, and that would be um, your your best ever goal scoring season. Last season was. Um, talk to me a bit about. You know, finding a place in Barnsley where you have stuck around for two seasons now, or more than two seasons, I should say, and really established yourself as a starter. Because uh, looking at you, you know, the previous seasons in your career, I think the most league starts that you made in a season for, for one club was Motherwell 24, Fleetwood 24. So it really feels like now you you are, you know, one of the the main strikers starting almost every game for Barnsley, uh, and it feels like it's it's almost taken a bit of time for that to be the case.
2: Yeah, I think in my like my journey is probably taken a bit of time, but I feel like places I've been before, I've always you know I've always got in, got a start, done well, and then scored goals. But I just think the difference here has been that I've been here two and a bit of years now, mm. it's coming to my third year, and I think if I'd um, stayed said those places for a bit longer, like the results would have been the same. But football is one of those things that's ever changed, and I think in those different situations, it was probably managers coming in and out, being on loan at different places, whereas here first year I came, obviously, it wasn't a great, great year for us. But then, obviously, from last year, you know, getting myself in the team, staying in the team, and then just kicking on again, I think, it only helps, like, consistency is like it's, it's key. And when you know mm-hmm. you're playing and you get yourself in, like, the right moments, I think that's key for everything. Then it, you know, kind of comes together. And then everything you can do, it comes out. And people will question why you've not done it before. But I think it's as much as, you know, you've got to be in the right place at the right time, is to do with as much of it as of like oh well you could have done it before I think everything does have to line up
1: Yeah there's also a bit of a trend that some of the top goal scorers in League 1 and League 2 as well are are I don't want to say late developers, but maybe in their late twenties and starting to score at a higher rate than maybe they would have done previously. Whereas a lot of the young goal scorers, you know, might score for a a month or two and then find it a bit tougher to to stay consistent. Have you noticed as your careers progress that just through experience and being a little uh, older has helped with certain parts of being a striker, whether it's movement, whether it's composure or even, you know, some people say learning when not to make a run and, You know, just that experience of holding your run to create a bit of space. Is that something you think you've improved on over time?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think probably not so much like the finishing side of things. I feel like that's always been strong, but I feel like definitely other aspects of my game, you know, like link up play, holding up and like movement. I think that is probably the last two, three years has really come on a lot, which obviously helps you then to get in those positions to, um, to score goals. But I think definitely like obviously in my late 20s now you know you come into prime years where i think all the different experiences from like your early 20s and there was different periods you know they kind of all comes together now for the next four or five years where you go on and then you know you just try and kick on no surprise why strikers are late bloom there's a lot a lot of strikers are
1: yeah there's loads of examples in the efl in particular of Guys quite often having played in non-league and only starting to score like a really prolific level, kind of late 20s, even into their early 30s. So it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, every position on the pitch is a bit different. I think goalkeepers and strikers are the ones, right, where, you know, they don't play by the same rules there. I'm interested to, to know a bit about the manager, Neil Collins, and the sort of transition from Mike Duff who left over the summer, um, Barnsley having lost in the playoff final, having had a really strong season last season, and now Neil taking over. Uh, Barnsley are known for, as a club, being fairly consistent in their approach and, and kind of single-minded in the way that they like to play the game. And, and therefore, the idea is um, that they are able to hire managers who don't you know, chop and change everything, so you, you maintain a level of consistency. What have been the the, dis- the differences or the similarities in approach?
2: I think, for me, like the big difference is there's probably a lot le- a lot more like flexibility with uh, Neil Collins than than we had under Michael Duff. I think you know we set up the same, but I think within that there's a lot more movement that the team can have. Whereas I think with Michael Duff, you know we had our ways of playing, and that was that was kind of that. So I think for me, that's probably been the bigger difference. Is you know there's you know we can change probably formations more. It's just different. Like as a striker, you've probably got a bit more freedom. Um, you know, to to move around, but then I think you know it has its pros and cons. So I think that's probably been the biggest difference for me because I think Barnes is a the club they set a model up, and whoever comes in kind of has to work with that model. But then mm. you know they put their own stamp on it.
1: You said there's pros and cons. I mean, on a very basic level, more goals being scored, more goals being conceded. It it does seem a bit a bit more open in its approach, and and like purposefully so. I mean, that if you're a striker, that can't be a bad thing, can it?
2: No, I mean, it's, it's it's great for me. That's one of the pros, but at the same time, it's, it's a con because we can see them more. So it's almost like, you know, before we look be looking to outscore you. Now, whereas last year, we knew we were solid. If we got a one goal lead, we were probably thinking, I don't really think you're going to score. Mm. And we know we might go and get another one. Whereas this year, I think, I back us in any game, if we only not scored in one game to probably go and get two or three. So I think, you know, we always know we're, we're going to be a threat, but then, you know, we might be a bit more open. And I just think that's what comes with it because you can't, almost open up and score more without leaving yourself a bit open I think
1: mm. it's a time of the season where you can kind of look at um, trends or things that are starting to stand out in the stats and kind of some of them will just be random and we'll, we'll just even out over time but there might be sort of something in it so I'd just love to ask you a couple of questions about, about the team this year I mean um, you've got an incredible away record that'd be a good place to start is there any particular particular reason you know personality or tactics of the team that might lend itself to playing away so well
2: I don't know. Away is always one of them. I'm, for me personally, I would say like football's just football, whether you're away or home. Sometimes I probably prefer playing away because it's a different stadium. it's just a, a different feel. But I think, I think it probably suits us because you know when you're away, teams can have to come out and mm. attack you really. And I think on the counter, like we're deadly. Like we know that we've got players who will hurt you on the counter. So I feel like that works well for us. But at the same time, when teams are coming out on us, you know, we know we can play through you as well. So, I just think that probably gives us that edge. And, you know, when people do come to us at home, a lot of people, they come, they set up, and, you know, it's hard to break down because you, you come into a good team in the league. So, I think mm. that's probably why our waveforms work so well for us.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you look at the results and the teams that you've beaten or lost against, it's noticeable that the five games that you guys have lost have all been against teams who are. In the mix with you in in positions first to eighth, you haven't lost to anyone beneath eighth. Um, but that record against the top teams is, is that something that's being talked about and worked on for the for the next big games?
0: Yeah, for
2: sure. I think even within those games like we were speaking about it the other day, and it's almost like Portsmouth we given three goals in ten minutes, came back to three two. Oxford we given three goals, we came back to um three two. And I think Blackpool and um I can't, I can't remember the other the other one, but. All, all of those games with the big ones it's like you know you can't really give a team three goals because you're asking to score fours a lot in most games so I think in, in two of those games there, I think we know we could have been a lot better and you know probably another game we don't give up three goals so I think we are there and thereabouts but it's just about us on the day and probably not switching off you know in the first 20 minutes for instance Portsmouth if I can give us eight minutes we were three down and you're just thinking what's going on here like how do you come back from that so I think if we don't give them that I think it's a completely different game.
1: We love hearing from players about you know um, other players that they come up against as as much as their teammates. So uh, I don't know how good your sort of memory is of games, but you know you're 18 games into the season. As I mentioned, you've had you've played a lot of the top teams already. From your point of view as a striker, who off the top of your head is is the has been the toughest opponent in terms of a centre back in League One this season? Uh,
2: if I'm if I'm being really honest, it's probably no one that I played this year that I've fought. Yeah. You're like what I think, like, is just like I feel like it's been really, really, really good. But I think if uh, we haven't played him yet, but I know when I play Bolton, he plays Santos. Like, for me, he's probably always been like he's the standout one. Mm-hmm. I think even from last year, and like everyone, everyone we played, like, you know, you switches, you came up when he was in the league, I, I still think he, he was standout. And compared to like our back three we had, who I think was standout, I think he, he'd be up there as well.
1: What is it? About a, a centre back that will stand out for you on the pitch—is it about physicality? Is it about them? They're like um, almost their positioning and anticipation—the idea that you know they're always seeming to be one step ahead. What what impresses you about an opposition centre back?
2: For me, it's just it, it's probably the physicality because I think as a centre back you've got to have that. But then it's it's when when they probably got all three and they they can do it all. So you know, like you're in for a battle. Like physically, they're strong. You know, they can move because they're quite quick. And then on the ball they're decent as well. And I feel like as a striker, when you're playing against that, you're thinking, well, you're in a battle here today because everything, well, for instance, someone like I've got, I know I'm quick, you know, I can get on the ball, but everything I've got, they can counter that. So then now I've got to think a bit quick. I've got to do something else to, to get a yard. So I think for me, when they are strong or, you know, they they, they read the game well, I mm-hmm. think that's sort of always something you've got to look at and you think, oh, actually, what else can I do to put them off their game?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a, a couple of quick ones before we let you go. Uh, you've played for, I make it, seven current EFL teams in your career so far. So outside of Barnsley, um, who you, you know you appeared uh, for when you were very young on loan, uh, MK Dons as well, Bradford, Fleetwood, Wigan, Burton, uh, Donny as well as Barnsley. Wh- which of the other clubs, not Barnsley, do you have the best memories of um, from earlier in your career?
2: I'd say Wigan for promotion. Though, like didn't get as much game time as, as I would have liked there but definitely promotion promotion something special and I think mm. uh probably the first the first year or two at Fleetwood because we had such a good group and I was on the flame with four or five boys I grew up with in academy of city so that's just that's just made it special so I probably have the the best memories of those two
1: what is it that that really motivates you and has it changed throughout your career what is it that that really drives you
2: I think for me it's just always striving to like just get to the Highest level as possible, and I think that's always going to be my, my driving force. You know, it's just to do better, be better, like you know, score as many goals as I can. But then, you know, I love football, so I'll be watching the championship games, thinking I want to get back there. You know, that is my next uh, my next step and driving towards that. But I think we all play football because we want to play as high as we can for as long as we can, and we just enjoy it. So I think my driving force is really just just playing football and enjoying because Saturday you can't beat it.
1: Where well, it must be nice, really, having started 40 games last season, all 18 this season for Barnsley as well. You know, if your driving force is is playing as much football as possible, then you're in a pretty good spot at the moment. Yeah, 100%. Uh, well, it's been really, really nice to, to chat with you and and get to know you. So thanks so much for giving up your time and uh, appearing on the pod today. I've really enjoyed it.
2: Cheers. Thank you, Ali.
1: Thank you very much to Devontae for giving up his time and talking to us for this week's pod. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, Clearly, it was a reduced slate in terms of EFL action. But as ever, we're committed to providing a ton of good content for you every single Monday, we think. And we hope that that's why we're up for tonight's FSA Award Podcast of the Year at the Football Supporter Association Awards. Uh, Whatever happens tonight, whatever happens uh, we're really, really grateful to you guys for listening to the pod and for supporting us in the way that you do. So, a huge thank you. Um, we're going to have a fantastic time, and we're looking forward to talking to you again in a couple of days with the betting show. Uh, go out. Ah, uh, hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice at Caskers.com.